0: Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, well-being speaker, educator and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. In this episode, I have the privilege of chatting with one of my all-time favorite thinkers, Dr. Sunia Luther. Dr. Luther is founder and executive director of AC Groups a non-profit that fosters resilience and well-being using the evidence-based Authentic Connections Group's intervention. She's also Professor Emerita at Columbia University's Teachers College. Dr. Luther received her PhD from Yale University and has been on the faculty at Yale's Department of Psychiatry and the Child Study Centre Columbia University's Teachers College and Arizona State University. Dr. Luther's career has focused on understanding processes in resilience among a diverse range of at-risk groups and on applying insights in prevention. She has held several leadership positions in science and has received many prestigious national awards recognising her scholarly contributions. In this fascinating conversation, we discuss the impact parental and educator well-being has on our young people, why it can be so difficult to ask for and accept support, how essential it is to have a space to connect authentically with others, and so much more. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sunia Luther. Sunia, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation because I first came across your work years ago when I was reading The Price of Privilege by Madeline Levine and when I came across your work around the impact socioeconomic has on our young people, and it's not just low socioeconomic, it's high socioeconomic as well, that really articulated something that I had been seeing for years and I couldn't put my finger on it why children had so much and yet felt so disconnected. And so your research in that area has been transformative. And then becoming a parent, your research in the area of who's mothering mother mm-hmm. has been another transformation for me. So you are such an important person in my life, and I'm so grateful to have this opportunity to chat to you.
1: We're awfully can't kind of say that, Meg, but I do want to add one clarification about the first point. Right. Which is um, the effects of socioeconomic status on kids. Uh, I believed when I started out this research in the early aughts, as you say, that this was uh, an effect of affluence over time. The last 20 years or so, we've come to the finding. It's not affluence. It's about being in a high achieving setting. Now, the two often go hand in hand, right? The wealthier parents are tend to send the kids to, quote, more competitive schools. So what we've come to, it's not that whether your parents are rich or poor or something in between. What matters is that you are in this hotbed of a school where everybody has to excel and everybody is striving to get someplace awfully good.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes complete sense. And what is the impact of being in an environment like that? Not good, in short. Uh, we published a
1: paper in the American Psychologist a couple of years ago, which is called High Achieving Schools Connote Risks for Adolescence. And we describe all the processes involved. So basically, you have this pressure to achieve that's right at the core. That's all the problems. Where does it, that come from? The question is, where, that, where does that not come from? As parents, we want our kids to have the kind of educational opportunities that we had. Teachers and coaches want the kids to excel. Peers are constantly comparing themselves with each other. And at least in the U.S., the college acceptance system is so (laughs) draconian from the point of view of the kids, you know, selectivity rates going down and so on. whole towns come out to watch people, the kids play sports with so much pressure if you have one bad game. So my question is, where does this pressure not come from? And the solution I'm jumping the gun here, I realize, is not to blame parents or to blame a school. This is a societal thing that we are all complicit in.
0: Yes, we are all a part of this and we almost feel the need to be busy now.
1: Yes, you are right. I mean, when you talk about achievement, high achieving settings in our children, I would encourage all of us, myself included, to take a step back and say, well, what about me? And what are my values for myself? And how do I lead my own life? Another paper we had was on kids' perceptions of their parents' values, and three were about fame and success, and grades, and three were about being a decent person and kind and so on. And kids who disproportionately saw their parents as emphasizing success as opposed to decency and kindness and so on, were the most unhappy. And the kids whose parents were seen as the lowest on success relative to decency were actually those that were not just the happiest but also did the best at school. So the take-home message there is that kids do what they see, not what we tell them. If I'm going to be frenzied, rushing around and having this enormously difficult schedule, packs gets so that I'm exhausted, they watch this stuff and they learn from us. You know, the old stuff of we are moral role models for our kids, turns out that's true. So I think the message, charity begins at home, charity towards oneself begins at home.
0: Yes. And thinking about this point, how did you get so curious in this research topic? What's your story? Mm, quite by accident.
1: I, when I came to the U.S. to do my uh, my Ph.D., my dissertation, Meg, was on very low-income adolescents, uh, urban poverty. And my question really was, what helps these kids do relatively well, show, quote, resilience, in spite of their difficult life circumstances? What happened over time was I bumped up against another question, which is, oh, is what I'm seeing an inner-city phenomenon, or is it an adolescent phenomenon? So one of my students said, well, we can get a comparison group. Shall we look at it? I said, that's what we made. We got the comparison group, which is kids of suburban parents, maybe university professors, journalists, authors. And that's when we first stumbled upon this, quite by accident, as I said, that the suburban kids were actually doing more poorly than the kids in poverty on several things, especially substance use, uh, but also clinically significant depression, anxiety, and so on. From there, it's been 20 years of following up on that first thread.
0: Was it a surprise to you, those results initially?
1: You bet it was a surprise. I mean, who would think of that, right? You have these kids with all these privileges, why on earth would that be? So as scientists, we make our, our hypotheses and our postulates and we go and test them out And Sometimes they're right and sometimes we're off by a bit. So the findings were correct that there was a problem, The supposition that this was because of wealth was not correct. And we corrected that over time and said, no, this is not. And at this point in time, you know, it's in in the U.S. We have this National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine. And there's a big, thick report issued in 2019, a consensus study report, meaning everybody has all the scientists have to agree on what's published in the people on the committee. And they have now accepted this. You know, a couple of two and a half pages, high-achieving schools cannot risk for adolescents. So we have now, your children and mine, entered the same category of, quote, at-risk students, which include traditionally kids in poverty, kids of foster parents who've been separated from their parents, and so on and so forth which is in some ways alarming, in some ways a great relief so that we're no longer pointing to an individual town or community or family or school saying, hey, this is an isolated problem. It is not. It is a big problem. It is a serious problem. It's a real problem. And we all have to get together to try and make a dent into it. For me, the beginning comes with, as you well know, starting with the people who take care of these kids, starting with the grown-ups.
0: Yes, and that is my number one focus is If we want our young people to be well, to be able to function, to be able to solve problems, we need to be the examples. We need to walk our talk. And it's so often that we say so much about well-being, about resilience, about being mindful, about slowing down, and students and young people are marinating in adults that are just rushing and busy. Correct.
1: You're absolutely right. So I tell you again, I started this work, Meg, with moms because moms are usually primary caregivers. And parenthetically, this is also in the National Academy's report that if you want a child to do well, your first job is to make sure the primary caregiver, who's usually the mom, is doing well. And that happens by supporting this primary caregiver. So that's now, again, a thing. It's a thing in science, developmental science. We're not looking at particular parenting behaviors or do this or don't do that. We're just saying, you, Meg, are you doing well? Are you happy or at least okay? That's what we want to achieve, right? So backtracking again to the early aughts, I had this study with a very different demographic of moms These were substance-abusing mothers with histories of addiction to heroin, for example, in methadone maintenance. Uh, Very poor, mostly single moms, very few supports. We had two five-year studies uh, testing this thing called relational psychotherapy moms group, same principles. Support the moms, make sure they have the steadfast, reliable, best quality support, and the benefits will spill over into multiple aspects of their lives. And the findings showed pretty much that in in both these five-year studies. Now you fast forward to 2013-14, and I moved from Connecticut to New York to Arizona. And so I, I really would like to test this out with a different population of moms. And a colleague suggested, well, how about physicians? They're under awfully high stress. It's a very demanding job, great burden of caregiving. I said, well, oh, but that's perfect. And so happened that the, the Mayo Clinic here in Arizona was interested at the time in testing this out. So we got our sample and we did the intervention, altered it some, right? From six months, it became three months. And instead of one and a half hours, it became one hour. Altered it some, but it was basically the same principle. That, that we had. So another thing I might add there, Meg, before I forget, which is, another you know, big alteration. I learned from the first studies that you can't walk in and give these women who have been so starved of comforting, loving support, you can't walk in and give them that for six months and then just walk out. That is bad news because it's, it's like pulling the rug out. So in this new version that we call Authentic Connections Groups, Right from session one onwards, we start building toward what we call your go-to committees, the network of people that you will develop and build and strengthen all through these 12 weeks that we're together so that by the time we're done with the 12 weeks, as I'm fond of saying, the group facilitator, that would be me. I become unnecessary. You can go on and people, women do. So think about the, the underlying mechanism. As I've said often in, when I chat with people, good therapy helps, but nothing heals like love in real life. And that's essentially what these groups hold you accountable to getting, so to speak. So that Meg is told, all right, today we talked about difficulties reaching out. Meg, what did you ta- how did you and your go-to p- uh, person deal with them? What did she say? What did you say? So every week you have to check in and say, yep, did my homework. Oh, no, I didn't. And that's fine. I'll do it next time but you get to be held accountable for making sure that you are supported. How cool is that?
0: That is my happy place. Like That is so good to hear stories where people are creating spaces to be held, to be supported, because we know as parents and educators and caregivers in general that we spend so much time caring for others, thinking about others' needs, what happens next, what's next, And to create space to honour and notice our own needs is the way forward.
1: Now, of course, you make an excellent point because that's what I say myself. So I agree with you completely. That said, I have to say, Meg, that here's another surprise for me. Why don't moms come breaking down my door saying, we all want to be in these groups? What happens? Almost every mother, not every mother says, I get it and I need it. I love it. But when it comes to actually signing up, something often comes in the way. I'm curious to see what your reaction may be. What are your thoughts on what that might be that says, here you are, Meg talking to me, and you say, Sonia, this is great, and I'll sign up. We have people from Australia, by the way. I'll sign up, and then I'm looking for you, you're not there. What is it
0: that comes in the way of Meg signing up? The guilt the guilt of taking time for myself, other things that pop up is I don't have time or I don't have energy or the kids need something or someone else needs something. I know a lot of the clients that I work with are teachers and parents and the hardest part for them is getting in the room, is giving themselves permission to take time out for themselves. Because I've noticed over time, and it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on this, is that it's almost so confronting to their identity to take time because they're so used to looking outwards and to look inwards just feels so uncomfortable it's so much easier to be the carer but it's very uncomfortable to be cared for it's excruciating for some people and I often say that it's a two-step process the first step is being willing to ask for help and that takes so much courage for most people and for most people they actually need to feel like they're almost broken and incapable of doing something before they give themselves permission to ask and then the second part is giving themselves permission to receive the help which is a a real skill for so many of us goodness you are brilliant
1: these are all excellent points that you make, and let's go through them one by one, because I want, I would like very much for all moms or dads or caregivers of any kind listening to you to really think these issues through. And we we'll go, number one is guilt. How can I take one hour a week for three months for myself to make sure that I'm not losing my marbles? I'm not coming unraveled. I'm asking you this question: Is that really a lot? One hour a week to make sure you're not coming unravelled? It's nothing. Uh, number one, number two. The science says I'm back. That's what I'm saying. The science says I go back to that National Academies report. You may not want to do this for yourself, but given that you are such a caring caregiver, don't you want to do this for your kids? Because that's what the science says. How you are doing is going to affect your kids. So that's point number two. uh, with regard to guilt, then, as I said, you're awfully astute in saying looking inward can be uncomfortable. Shelley Taylor is an American psychologist who I think is brilliant, and she's got this theory that when men are threatened, they do the defensive fight or flight. When we women are threatened, we get into tend and befriend mode, taking care of other people, which is pretty much what you were saying. Here's some bad thing is happening to me, and I go to take care of other people. The problem is we as women are not nearly as good at asking for, or even, as you correctly pointed out, receiving that tending and befriending when it's offered to us. And that is a question worth thinking about for each of us as individuals. Why am I so hesitant? Is it that I expect it won't be there? I can tell you it will be there. There's enough papers we've written on this. We've had no dropouts. We do it in a way that's safe. So don't feel like this is going to be so painful. In fact, Meg, we tell people we never go to a place where you might leave the room feeling raw. That's our people who run these groups are trained to say, yes, of course, we want to talk about real things, but we will steer clear of anything that is going to be traumatizing essentially. And that's our job as as facilitators. Why some people say, I don't want to be seen as frail. I don't want to be seen as needy. To which my answer now is, goodness, humanity has been traumatized over the last couple of years. Who now does not need help? And as I said, certainly not. I, I certainly do. Even if you say, well, thank you, Sonia. I got a great spouse. I got a great sister. I got a great circle of friends. They're all very loving. So I'm not sure I really need extra support. I said, fine. Are you empathic because you're a caregiver? The answer is going to be yes. I try to be. So, what is the definition of the word empathy? It means holding the pain of another. And if you are caring for a bunch of people, all of whom have been through this trauma of these last two years, some of them are going to be hurting pretty badly. And you are going to be holding on to that pain. So, how about it? Isn't there some pain in you that might need a little bit of caretaking, a little bit of comfort, a little bit of solace? This is not about you being weak. This is about you being a strong person saying, for me to be my very best self in taking care of my, my child, my spouse, my students, my anyone, for me to be my, my, my best self, I have to be replenished. With the very same strong, I keep coming back to steadfast, the steadfast, dependable, pure even love that I try and give to my students or my children or people I take care of. I must, that is being a strong person. That is being a strong caregiver to do this proactively and don't, as you once again correctly pointed out, don't wait that to be broken.
0: Yes, and that's a skill that I've had to learn over the time, that the time I asked for help, normally I was completely and utterly done. And so now being able to pick up the cues earlier and reach out before I need it, because the time we need it, we need it two weeks ago, so being able to reach out for help earlier. And that's why I think your work in creating these groups where mothers and caregivers can be together. Exactly. It normalises the stress, the struggle, and then because we are caregivers at heart, we can offer that warmth and consideration to others. It is truly like magic,
1: Meg, to watch it happen. I have been in this business for a while, since 1990 when I got my PhD. Through all these years, there is nothing that I have done professionally that has brought me greater joy and gratification than these groups. You see in person and now on the screen, equally effectively, I might add, these faces lighting up. So I come and say I've had a really lousy day x and y happen immediately see all these other faces lighting up with concern with warmth with affection oh goodness that's dreadful and how do you manage that is what we all need each of us i don't care how old you are how successful you are how famous you are how and and how good a marriage you have which is another interesting point if i may speak about it. this notion of your go-to people that cannot be your spouse or significant other that's disallowed you might ask me why the answer is because the expectations that we all put on our primary relationships, the marriages, whatever, spouses, are so high to begin with, right? You're my financial partner, you're my co-parent, you're my, you're my therapist, and you cannot add this along, along with all the other things. So, plus it's sometimes nice to be able to grumble about your significant other to somebody. So that would be your go-to with I'm joking, but uh, jokes aside, it is true. We all need those one or two sort of safety net people that we have in our back pockets that we talk to regularly so that these muscles, if you will, are strong already at a point when you, as you said, you are breaking, it's there. All you have to do is send that one text message and you've got this one or two people saying, "Ah, got it, I'm here. Maybe I can't talk right now. Can we talk tomorrow? Can we text? Can we visit? But I'm here for you.
0: Yes, knowing people that are here for you is so important. And I like to call the people in my life that are there for me my witnesses the people who I've allowed to witness my strength and struggle. And so when I am struggling, the people that I can call and let them witness my struggle, and also the people that I can call when things are going well too, that they're there for the ride, they're there for the ups and downs.
1: You are right. In fact, once again, you've hit upon something important in psychological research, which is people whom you feel truly loved by are not just those that empathise with your pain and are supportive, but equally, if not more, sometimes rejoice in your successes and your happiness just because you are happy, I am. That makes us feel very loved and valued. So we have this one statement, Meg, in the, in, in, in the intervention that I want all of our facilitators, want every participant to leave with, which is I feel seen and loved for the person I am at my core. Yes. Warts and all. My strengths and court weaknesses, my falling down, my convictions, my aspirations, my pay, all of it. I feel especially the things that are most important to me that I value the most. and That is, and what is that? What is that? That's unconditional acceptance. That is what we want our children to feel from us, is it not? And if we want to dish this out,
0: it's got to be coming in, doesn't it? How can you dish out something that you don't have? And we've got to experience that through other people so then we can give it to ourselves and then give it to our young people. So when we boil it down, what is the impact of a parent's well-being on a young person? Enormous. Am I allowed to give a one-word answer? <laughs> Enormous?
1: Well, think of where it doesn't matter. I've been depressed. I and mean, my kids are grown in, uh, out of the house, 31 and 28. I was depressed as a mom. Where does it not come out? It comes out in my attentiveness to them, in my being touchy. I tend to be less angry and more sad. So they are, certainly they see my kids are enormously sensitive to parents' depression. They pick it up, uh, pick up on it. It comes into my attentiveness to how they're doing at school and what their homework is, how I show up at the playground and interact with the other moms. So once again, as I asked about the question, where does it not? It's the same thing here. When you are depressed, the worse it gets, it trickles out. In the same way, positively, when you're feeling good, the benefits spill over into all these aspects of your life. Make sense?
0: Yeah, I've been visioning recently that really parents and educators are like the Wi-Fi in the room. They set the tone in how much they've got to give. And so if they're on the old dial-up internet where it takes a little while to get a response or if they got broadband. And I know for me that I've learned over the last few years that I'm a much more present and engaged mother, caregiver, wife, daughter, sister when I'm working. So when I'm engaged in meaningful work, it lights me up and it gives me this energy that I can be present. But when I was at home full-time, I found that really hard and I felt the resentment was just building and building and I felt irritated I could felt like my skin was just getting itchy and irritated but as soon as I went back to work and started to do more work I could be a more present mother correct correct and work
1: is again having these multiple roles that we are in if you feel good at work it's Wonderful, the feeling efficacious, the intellectual stimulation, the camaraderie, the fun, having the chat that you and I are having, many good things. But I'm to add, but that does not take the place of being loved. Work is terrific, but that's in its separate bucket. We all still need this bucket of being loved, which takes me back to somewhere you mentioned and I wrote it down. I wanted to come back to that, which is give it to ourselves. So people say to me, oh, Dr. Luther, you're saying it's the oxygen mask thing, right? Put on your own mask. I said actually it's not. What I'm saying is make sure that you, Meg, have someone handy who will put on your mask for you. Because yes, we too grown ups can be gasping. And when you're gasping, as you said earlier, you don't want to be that completely shattered place. It's hard to find someone then. So, hence, QED. Ahead of time, we make sure we have these mask putters on for us. And that means we are not taking care of ourselves. We are prioritising being taken care of. So this is not self-care. I have an aversion almost to the word self-care. This is about taking care of you. Make sure that you prioritise that you make are taken care of.
0: Yes, I love extending that analogy from not just putting the oxygen mask on for our young people but allowing an oxygen mask to be put on for ourselves. I think you'd get on really well with my mum because my mum is really passionate about this. She is a newly retired midwife and she worked for over 40 years with mothers in that first six weeks in the newborn phase and her philosophy was always if we care for the mother, she will have the energy and the ability to problem solve for her baby. Let's not focus on the baby. Let's focus on the mother, get her rested, get her thinking, and it will work out well.
1: Would you extend an invitation from me to your mom, please, and say I would love to do a group for women our age who are retired or close to retirement, who have been through it all. We have a lot to say to each other and do for each other. So please extend that invitation, if you would, from me.
0: Oh, yes, I'll extend that and she will be absolutely thrilled because there's so much knowledge that we can share through conversations and that's why I love this podcast so much because we're having heartfelt conversations about topics that really matter. And I know recently I was talking to my grandmother and I asked her what's changed when it comes to parenting and if you had your time again in those early years – what would you do? And she took some time to think about it. And then eventually she said, Meg, I would give myself time to do something for me. There was not one minute of the week where I did anything for me. It was breakfast, lunch, dinner, always waiting to be of service, to do things for everybody else. And I wish I took time to do something for me, even if that was sewing, it's just something for me. Right. I'm glad to hear that you pondered and i
1: I love her answer, obviously, that I wish she had had more, but you know what it's never too late. I'm very, very much focused on this issue of uh the older generation. I always should be anywhere sixties seventies, eighties people get I can say this bluntly because I'm there. people get feel invisible as they get older, and the same work that you spoke about that brings you so much joy as people start to move away from it gra- the gratification the joy. That big, makes big, a bit of a hole in our lives. Where does that go? Who takes care of these wonderful, loving midwives or you know teachers? Where does that go? It's their turn, for heaven's sake. So this is my newest thing. This, the other oh, study was called Who Mothers, Mommy. You know, when I, this new study is going to be something like I haven't got the right words, but tending the boomers or attending to the boomers. That would be people like us. So who cares about us and? Why does it matter? How can we make sure this is our thing? We are a thing. We matter. Our happiness matters. And here's what research science will tell us about it.
0: Yes, your happiness absolutely matters. And I love that your curiosity takes you to these new chapters all the time, thinking about new ways of caring, new levels of caring. And for so many of us, This idea of parental well-being, teacher well-being, it feels like it's new. But for me, I feel like it's always been in the room. It's just now, because of the pandemic, people are finally talking about it and listening. Have you noticed that?
1: Yes. Uh, Like As you said, again, going back to your point about uh, looking in, as you put it so beautifully, it can be uncomfortable and scary, right? The threshold is a little lower right now because the level of pain and trauma has been so high that our breaking point, if you will, comes much more quickly, which is very sad, but it gives people access to that inner self that they can, they can then share. Um, the challenge is, Meg, to how do we come together and make it central to the conversation? It shouldn't be an isolated person here and there saying, yeah, I get it. And when I say it shouldn't be an isolated, it should be how do we as, for lack of a better word, womankind, I'm just focusing on women for right now, come together and make sure this actually happens. Which means dealing with all those obstacles that we put up for ourselves and the I should say, excuses, the reasons we give, coaxing each other along. Saying, I know this is going to be good for you. That is something we can't do. I can't do this alone. I can write all the books and papers I want. I can't do this alone. We need to step up together to say, I love you. I love you. And I want this for you. Humor me. Make that my birthday gift. Be in a group. There you go. Be in a group.
0: Yes. Humor me. (laughs) Come into the group. And I've often um, thought in my head, just like we have AA, We can also have like Thrivers, like a Thrivers Anonymous or even unanonymous, just Thrivers together. A program that I run is called Thrive by Design Mm -hmm. and I've done it for a while now in schools working with teachers. So it's a program and there's content but the thing that they love is the weekly group facilitated conversations. That's where you see the smiles and the shoulders drop and, oh, it's not just me and this is magic. And mm-hmm. one beautiful school that I worked with during the pandemic last year said, would you be willing to offer the same program to our parent community? And so I'm in the middle of that now and they had 130 parents join for this program and they are absolutely loving having a space once a week to hear some information but then have a laugh and to realize they're not the only ones trying to juggle all the things and a parent just last week said from these sessions I have learned that it's okay that the house is messy sometimes it's okay that the house it's a bit chaotic sometimes it's a part of it, and I've given myself more permission to be human, and I've en- I'm enjoying my parenting so much more just because I've heard other people's honest stories.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's wonderful. I'm delighted to hear that and delighted that it's spreading. One thing that may differ, and I don't know you'll have to tell me if I'm right or wrong, is we do venture into spaces that are a little more troubling. They're relationship-oriented every session. So for example, one would be anger and the fact that it's not a pure emotion underneath is fear or hurt or uh, difficulties reaching out. So these push us to our next level, make us go, even this issue of connecting. So it's not just about, you know, my house isn't, uh, not to say that's not important, it's awfully important, but it's going to that next level. I want for you what you want for your child. And that's the love. It's making sure we stay focused on that love and the consistency of it, and the uh, the sheer uh, power, which is a different realm <laughs> for me of uh, of getting to. It is that unconditional loving that we should go to expect for ourselves.
0: And I love that idea of power. Because we can be f- powerful when we are nurtured and cared for, when there's a strong base, we can be so powerful in the world. I just did an interview with a group called Texas
1: Women in Leadership, I think, and they're going to put this together and, and share it. But this is an, and I had there as other guests, one woman who's a very senior physician. Uh, and she does work on resilience in pediatrics. And the other one was a head of a private school, what you folks call a private school. And it was so beautiful to have these two women speak from the heart about how when they allowed themselves, and one of them even said, Sonia, you were fierce in making sure we didn't stay at that problem-solving level, that we went to the real heart, the issues that were really at the heart of what we were feeling. There is laughter, as you said. But well, there is recognition of that which you pointed to, which remains unspoken and unsaid, which is, yes, we also need and we must have it. Yes. And we do get much, much stronger as leaders, as mothers, as care. we get much stronger with just a little bit goes a very long way.
0: That is so true. A little bit goes a long way. Just that little bit of care, that resonance can last and so for any teacher, parent or caregiver listening who has identified that they struggle to ask for help, that they're feeling probably a bit exhausted, not cared for, not loved and seen, what advice would you have for them? What could they do? Um, well, one is set up for
1: groups. We are international, so please do join us. No trouble at all look at us, it's four o'clock in the evening for me and mine for you in the morning, right? So that that would be one. The other is if you can't or for some reason don't want to, then at least take the principles that underlie, which is reaching out proactively to your go-to people, make sure you have that safety net, which one woman, it's, it's caught on, one woman early on called it our blanket of love. Make sure you've got this blanket of love handy, so... Ask your your best friends, ask your mom, ask your sister uh, to work with you on getting this thing, the safety and this blanket ready ahead of time. And I would love to collaborate with you. You know, we could be doing this. We're talking to people in India and in uh, East Africa. Uh, So this is not, oh, this reminds me. You said Alcoholics Anonymous. My vision at one point, and still is, Mother's Anonymous, Teacher's Anonymous, Dad's Anonymous. We're working with men too now, and they're loving it, right? They're getting so much ramen. So you've got exactly the right point. This is out there. It is love. It is free. As long as we put it together, get it organized, it can do just so much. And the proof of the pudding is in Alcoholics Anonymous, as you you know. Look at how many countries and how many years and how many people, millions of people have been helped by it. The power of that love in the rooms. That's what they keep talking about the, the power of what's in the room. And that's it. Well, I shouldn't be said that's it because all, there are also some skills involved in staying away from stuff that's too traumatic. Also, it's not just the power, but that's what we capitalize on. That's the biggest part of
0: it. Yes. Getting ourselves into spaces where we can feel loved, receive support and care. Sunia, you've given us so much to think about. To wrap up this really heartfelt and thought-provoking conversation, I invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Sure. I am inspired by?
1: Your grandmother. I'm inspired by women who've lived long lives and have produced generations like you.
0: When my life feels hard.
1: Well, I try and do what I exhort others to do. I try and reach out before I get to a point of utter misery and say, I'm having a shit, pardon me, I'm having a really lousy day.
0: Beautiful. And underrated skill is? Capacity
1: for being loving. And I should say, mutually, exchanging love. How it's at the hub of everything humanity wants to be, happiness, isn't that. That is underrated. It's so simple if you boil it down just to that. We need to be able to give and accept
0: that love. Oh, that is such a skill. And finally, I am looking forward to talking to your mom. <laughs> i'm looking forward to talking <laughs> mum's going to be thrilled <laughs> i wasn't fooling when i said i want to talk to her yeah mum is going to be thrilled and i really appreciate your time today Sunya. you have created generations of people that are thinking deeply about the way that we show up about the way that we care for ourselves and then the way that we care for our young people thank you so much for being a guest on the school of Wellbeing.
1: Usually I say it's a pleasure right about now, and it is a pleasure, but I have deep respect for your clinical acumen and your own wisdom and that you've shared here. Uh, You've given me a lot to think about. I hope we'll stay in touch. Lots of love to you.
0: As big-hearted humans, it can be so easy to fall into the trap of caring for everybody else but ourselves. I hope this conversation has inspired you to actively seek out spaces where you can be cared for and supported in authentic ways. To learn more about Dr. Luther's incredible research, you can visit her website, sunyaluther.org, where you will find a comprehensive list of publications and presentations. To learn more or join an authentic connections group, visit the website, acgroups.org. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to complete these two sentences. Number one, from this conversation, I want to remember, what is your pearl? And number two, the action I'm going to take in the next 24 hours to support my well-being is. If you love the show, please rate and review on iTunes and Spotify and share with your family, friends, and colleagues. To learn more about how I can help you thrive, visit openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next event or make an inquiry about our game-changing workplace wellbeing program, Thrive by Design. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 39. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.